Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this very special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Ken. Thank you. My name is Ken. I'm an abstaining compulsive overeater. I've always called myself an overachiever with a fork. That's what I've done best. When it came to food, I was an addict. And my definition of an addict is somebody who reaches for something physical in order to solve something spiritual or emotional. And my substance was food. I came in here over 300 pounds. I don't know my exact weight. I only got on normal scales. I go to 299 and hit zero. When it hit zero, I'd run off to another doctor. I took pills for over 20 years. I took the original protein powder, Metrical. I took uh, some sessions with a therapist. I went to a hypnotherapist. When I moved out here, my weight went down, my weight went up. My weight went down, my weight went up. I could never maintain something because I was trying to fix my body. And today I believe differently. There's nothing wrong with my body. There's nothing wrong with your body. The problem's up here between our ears. That's where I have something that doesn't work well. And I listen to what goes on in my head, and I take direction, or used to, from it. And I go and think, and the best thing to do in thinking would be to chew on something. And I did that consistently. So, in terms of a compulsive overeater, it's very difficult to explain to a normal person, those are the people who live out there, outside the rooms, what a compulsive overeater is. And I had a normal person about a year ago come up to me when I was speaking to somebody else in program and said, what is a compulsive overeater? And I thought, how do I explain this to you? And so I said something that came into my head. I said, men like to look at centerfolds in a magazine. They'll open up the magazine, spread out the centerfold. They'll look down, they get happy, they'll smile. They have a warm feeling. And my idea of my favorite centerfold would be a loaf of rye bread. <laughs> and that's the way I think. I think in terms of what's most appetizing that I can imbibe. I found this program by accident in 1978. I went to a business meeting in San Francisco. I met a man I hadn't seen in years. He had a normal body, a smile on his face. And I knew him from New York, and I went up to him. I said, Stan, how are you? What happened to you? I mean, he looked normal, so I said, what happened? And we talked for a few minutes. That was God working in my life. I hadn't seen him in years. And he said, Ken, you know, I found a way of life that's unbelievable, and the weight went away, and everything is different. Go home and look up Overeaters Anonymous in the white pages. You'll find it in any phone book, wherever you go. Again, I say it was God working my life because it's now 36 years later and I haven't seen him since. But we met for 15 minutes at a business meeting in San Francisco and he planted the seed. So I did what I always used to do. I ran home, I got out the white pages, I copied down the number, put it in my wallet and forgot it. That's the way I used to do things. Later. That was in February. In May, I found a piece of paper and I figured, what the heck, I'm going to dial the number, I'll find out what this is. As soon as I find out it doesn't work, I'm out of here. That's the way my thinking is. 
I called up and God was working in my life again because I got a recording. I did not get a live man or woman. And uh, they explained there's a meeting in Van Nuys on Wednesday night. It was Wednesday at 8 o'clock, gave me the address. I lied to my wife. I said, I'm going out to buy clothing. I knew she'd never go with me to buy clothing. It was not a good experience. And I went to the meeting. And I was looking for a nurse or someone in charge. I was looking for diets. I was looking for whatever they give out. Maybe a magic cookie. I was looking for the scale. I didn't see any of this. I saw people that had smiles on their faces. I'm going to pass my pictures around to get an idea of who I was and who I am. And I identified with what was coming out of their mouths. I couldn't explain it. And I heard you had to have a sponsor in order to work this program successfully. Well, that again said, I have to go home and think about that. And so I left and went home and thought I'd go back a week later. And in Los Angeles, you can go to a meeting the next day. You can go four hours later. They're all over the place. My head said, you started on Wednesday. That's when you go back. So I went back the following Wednesday. I looked around the room and I asked this very small man, because I thought I can control a person like that. I said, would you show me what this is about? He said, are you looking for a sponsor? That would be too humbling for me to say that. I didn't know that's what this is all about as well. I said, yes, if you could show me what this is. And we worked out that I'd call him at 7.30 in the morning and give him my food for the day, and he gave me some tough love. He said, Ken, if you put it in your mouth, put it in my ear. You could eat whatever you want, but I want to know what it is. So we started. In those days, it was different. I had a gray sheet, and we worked for 21 days with a sponsor. You committed to not breaking it for 21 days. After 21, you could quit. The sponsor could quit. But at the end of 21 days, I'd taken off 15, 16 pounds. My head immediately said, I don't need him. I don't have to drive across the valley to a meeting, and I don't need to read a book with 565 pages that doesn't have pictures. <laughs> you know what happened? I put on over 20 pounds. I couldn't figure it out. I abstained. I broke it. I abstained. I broke it. It went on from May to November. In November, I had a binge that I call my last binge. lasted 48 hours. It happened over Thanksgiving. And I had a very good reason for binging, which a lot of people wouldn't understand, but I think you will. There were people in my home I didn't want to be there for Thanksgiving. Isn't that a great reason for me to kill myself with food? So I ate and helped my wife in the preparation of the food. I ate the dinner. I helped cleaning up. I ate it when it was ice cold in the middle of the night, and I ate it the next morning. That was my breakfast as well. And I finally called up my sponsor, and I said, Neil, let me tell you what I did. And I figured he's going to tell me to get lost, and that's fine. And you know what he said? He said, what are you going to do today? It blew my mind. He said, get yourself to a meeting and look in the book and read page 45. And I said, in my controlling nature, what's on page 45? By the way, I used the third edition because that's what I bought when I came in here. I still use the third. But the first 165 pages are identical in every edition. Well, page 45 has to do with lack of power. That is our dilemma. I don't have the power to do anything about food. It rules me. And I got to the meeting, and he said to me, Ken, if you really want to recover, if you want this to work like you see for many of us here, you're going to work these steps, 12 steps. And I said, I see. I know what they are. I see them on the wall. He said, that's not enough. 
You have to do them with another person. And inwardly I said, oh, damn. How am I going to do How do you do this? And he said, the first step is the easiest one of all. You go to a meeting, you raise your hand, and you admit out loud that you're a compulsive overeater. And said, I'm going to do it. I was going to work these steps until I found something I couldn't believe or wouldn't work, and then I'm out of here. And I remember the first meeting that I had pitched at. I raised my hand. My hands were wet. My mouth was dry. I said, uh, my name is Ken. I am a compulsive overeater. I only eat on special occasions. I eat when I'm angry. I eat when I'm sad. I eat when I'm alone. I eat when I'm horny. And I eat one other time when I'm awake. It was, it was all true. I remember that first pitch. I don't remember anything I've said since then. And my sponsor said, when you're ready, you'll take the second step. It has to do with coming to believe. He said, do you believe a doctor ever fixed you? Did the therapist fix you? Can your wife fix you? Did your parents fix you? Did you buy anything at a drugstore that fixed you? I said, okay, if there is a power that can fix me, I'll believe it's got to be higher than anything I tried to buy with money. That's a simple second step. You come to believe this may work. I wasn't sure it would. The third step was where I was going to get out. Was I had to read it in the 12 and 12. I went home, I read the third step, and I said, this is it. He's going to show me where God is. So I went to the meeting. We met before the meeting. I said, okay, Neil, tell me, how do I find God? I read the third step. And he said, Ken, what he said blew me away. He said, don't concentrate on trying to find God. Your job is to look for God. You look for God when you go to a meeting. You look for God when the phone rings and someone wants to talk and all you do is listen. You look for God when you open up a book of 565 pages with no pictures and read a page. And if you don't know what page to read, you call someone and ask them to recommend a page. This is how you look for God. And if you keep looking, you're bound to find something that works. Because you can't find anything if you never look for it. And I've been looking ever since. And I do have a power that's greater than myself. Because left to my own devices, I'm still a 300-pound head. But it's not on my body. My weight now is 170, 176. I have a range. It's a little lower in the summer because I'm more active. It's a little higher in the winter because I'm more sedentary. But that's my range. It's funny. I went to a doctor once for a physical. He knew me when I was 300 pounds, too. And I said, uh, you know, I've got this weight now. I'm about 176, 177. What's my weight supposed to be? And he said, well, you know what? You're supposed to have a range. People have a range. They don't have a number. And I said, no, I don't want that. I want to know the number. And he said, only statues have a number. People have a range because you're more active in the summer. You drop four or five pounds. You're less active in the winter. Or you have a cold and retained fluid. You'll put on four or five pounds. So you have a range. I thought about what he said. And it made sense. And who wants to be a statue? You know what birds do to them. <laughs> so I'm not locked onto a number. What I do now is check my weight, and everyone I sponsor checks their weight the first of every month. That was yesterday. And we trade numbers. I was 176 yesterday, and the people that uh, check their weight give me their number. It's a weather forecast for the previous month. We just talk about it for a few minutes, put it away. We don't get on the scale again for 30 days. We don't talk about weight because this has nothing to do with weight. It has to do with 
our head and what we do with ourselves and what we let our head do with us. So I went on to work the uh, rest of the steps, the fourth. I didn't know how to start. I didn't know how to finish. And I was told, write down anything you don't want anyone else to ever see or hear. Now, that's easy. Then what do I do with it? He says, you're going to read it to me. That's the fifth step. So again, I said, I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do or told because my weight was going down. I was now 250, 260. I couldn't believe it. I had to buy new clothing. And so I continued with the steps. I continued with the six and seven. I still have character defects. That's because I'm human. I think a person without flaws is not real. We all have to have them. That's what being human is. I don't practice them the way I used to. Sometimes they come to the forefront of my mind. Somebody says someone something in my family and it irritates me and my tongue is about to lash out and I'll bite it. Because I don't want to pay the price. I'm going to have to go back and sit down and think about it, call someone, tell them what I did, make amends. I don't want all that stuff again. <laughs> so I try not to screw up. But sometimes you can't help it. Especially when I'm driving. And I see other people driving next to me that are crazy. And they think I'm crazy. And we're both right. So I've worked through the steps how to make amends. You could make amends to anybody. People that you haven't seen in 50 years. People that are no longer living. People that you don't want to say, I'm sorry to. It's more than lining up people and just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's not just making amends. You can write them. You can save them. You can act differently. There's many ways to make amends, but you have to learn how with a sponsor. And I live in 10, 11, and 12. The 10th step is something that I have in print that uh, people uh, that I sponsor get to step 10. I give them this sheet. It comes from page 86 in the big book. They ask you questions on that page. And if you want to take a 10-step because something's running around your head like a dog chasing his tail, you fill out this sheet. It takes about five minutes. You read it to your sponsor, and you destroy it. And it's done. This is a very simple program. It's very simple. So that's who I was, and this is who I am. I'm still on the verge of being... 300 pounds. I never want to forget it. It's scary. It's very scary. I've had miracles occur in my life, and uh, it's very difficult to explain what a miracle is, except it's something that's totally unexpected that I would never believe would happen. And there have been several of them over the years. I'll share one or two of them with you. I went on a business meeting to Fresno, California, with three or four years of abstinence in my life. And it was a terrible business trip because they had major problems in that town and I had to solve the problems. And after one day I saw I wasn't solving anything. It wasn't going to be a good trip. And so I went back to the hotel and when I walked into the hotel, on the left is a restaurant and on the right is a bar. And somehow I walked straight back to the elevator, went up into my room, looked in the white pages, found OA, called them up and got a recording that there was a meeting in Clovis, California. I'm talking about a miracle. What happened was a miracle. I don't know where Clovis is. I had to go down the desk, 
They gave me directions on the way there. I uh, had to ask other people for directions. I finally found that it was a church similar to this with a parking lot that was empty. It's about a quarter to seven at night. I sit down in the parking lot and wait. And after a few minutes, a man comes around the side of a building, unlocks one of the rooms, and he's setting up chairs, and I get out of the car, go into the room, and go up to him and say, my name is Ken. I'm from Los Angeles. I did not have a good day. And I go on to tell him, about what went on the day and what's going on in my head. And he just stood there and looked at me. And you know what? I felt better. I mean, I got it out. That's a verbal tense step. But that was not the miracle. The miracle was that I didn't know it at the time, but this man did not understand English. <laughs> he was a Hispanic maintenance man whose job it was to set up rooms. And he... He listened to me and then left, and then I found out who he was, and I didn't know what I was talking about, and I said, I, I don't understand. I feel better. I will never forget his face or that meeting. And that's a miracle because I took the action. And that's what the program's about. Take the action. I want to sit down and thank you looking for trouble. There are other miracles. I'll share one, but first I want to get into my abstinence. There are three things I don't eat, period. I don't eat red meat, I don't eat bread, I don't eat refined sugar. Red meat used to call me on several nights. The reason I'd go home at night knowing I'd have a beef dinner, I'd love it. And it doesn't call me anymore. That's a minor miracle. It just doesn't. I wouldn't even order it if I were alone in a restaurant in another city where nobody would even see me. It doesn't call me. I don't like red meat for some reason. Bread's another story. I used to eat bread with nothing on it, just to chew. But if I'm alone, it's not going to be in front of me. And I'm with other people, they're allowed to have it. I used to, in my early days, say, could you take the bread off the table? That's selfish. So today I say out loud, when they put it down, they say, oh, you have to try this. It's warm and it's crusty. And all. I say, thank you. It's not for me. I can't have that. And I change the subject. As far as refined sugar, it's in everything. So there's no way to eliminate 100%, but I do not choose anything with refined sugar. I go to people's homes today, especially at holiday time, to have bowls out with stuff in it, stuff that used to attract me. It's in little pieces and different colors. <laughs> and my first thought is, I can't have the first one. I can have the rest, but I can't have the first one. And while I start to figure that out, I walk away from it and get into a conversation or sometimes walk into a, another room where there's another bowl. So I do it all over again. I cannot have the first piece. And if I don't have the first, there's no rest. And that's what I do. I spar with my head. Do I still call my food in on a daily basis? No. Do I still commit to different types of food on different days? Yes. If I'm uh, going to go out with my wife for dinner on a weekend night with other people, and it's later than usual, I don't like to eat after 7.30 or 8 at the latest, but it's going to be 8 or 8.15 or whatever, uh, I will call someone and tell them, we're going to a restaurant, I'm going to have a seafood dish, vegetables, and a beverage for dessert. If I have anything else, can I call you back? And that's what I do. I have to commit to a safe dinner. 
because when I'm in a restaurant with other people, everyone is selling me food. You've got to try this. You should try that. You don't know what you're missing. And I say, I know what I'm missing. And they don't know what I'm talking about. And that's okay. All of that's okay. So I do commit special occasions. Or if I go to a, uh, an event like a wedding, and it's going to be a prolonged dinner, an hour and a half, I'll take the water goblet and put it right on my plate. And when they come around with the course I don't want, I say, no, I'll pass. And the main course, I take the water goblet off. And after the main course, it goes back on the plate. I have to play these games because otherwise my head says, Ken, it's been years. What's the matter with you? Why don't you try this? I'm going to listen to that again. So I found I do have company in reading the big book. There's a wonderful page which lets us know we are never alone, except by choice. And that page is page 12. I'll leave it for you for homework. If you read that page, you'll find you are never alone, and you'll have something to help you get through the moment. And that's what this program is about, getting through the moment, not getting through the week or the year, or even the whole day at one time, getting through the moment. Because if I screw up in a moment, I'm going to screw up the next moment, too. And the next thing I'll do is hide. Because I'll never want to admit to something happening. And I can't lie about myself anymore. Because that's who I was. I do things that are off the wall. I remember I went to a, uh, someone's home last year for a, a barbecue in the afternoon. And they had all this stuff out. And the barbecue is meat. And uh, I don't eat that. And they had a lot of uh, sauces and stuff. I don't eat that. So I went into the bathroom. I took out my phone. I called a friend and told them what I was going to do. They did have salad. I was going to make a plate of salad. And I was talking about my food. And I said, thank you very much. If it changes, I'll call you back. And I went back out. And I'm out there a few minutes. And a woman's talking to another woman. She said, you wouldn't believe it. There's a guy in the bathroom talking about what he's going to have for dinner. <laughs> what do I care? It was good for me. I don't care what they think. It was good for me. I have to take alternative action. I worked at a job where at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they would celebrate anything. A birthday, an anniversary, the conception of a child, anything at 3 o'clock. And they'd have a beverage, a bunch of beverages and a cake, always a cake. And I'd go in and I always opted for tea because tea doesn't call me. And they'd offer me the cake and say, Ken, again, you don't know what you're missing. On occasion, it's an ice cream cake. And they say, you have to have it now because it's going to go away. It's going to melt. I say, thank you, no thank you. And the way I get around that is before I go into the room, I make a call from my desk. I've done this for years. I'm now retired. I call someone and say, I'm going down there to celebrate whatever it is. I'm going to have a cup of tea. And if I have anything else, I'm going to call you back and tell you. Once in a while, I can't reach a human. I'll put it on their machine. But I do it because I have to keep myself straight. So then I go down there. I have my beverage. I annoy a lot of people because they want me to have what they're having. And I can't make other people happy. I can't because I'll make myself unhappy. And when it comes to food, there's no human that could tell me what's good for me with food, except a doctor. They may know. And that leads me to 
another miracle that happened in my life. In 2003, I underwent a cardiac arrest. That's not a heart attack. Your heart just stops. I was uh, went to a meeting in Burbank at 7.30 in the morning. I drove the freeway alone. I was fine. I went to the meeting, stayed there alone. I was fine. I drove home on the freeway. I was fine. I took my wife out to lunch. We sat down. I ordered a chef's salad. Last thing I remember, I then fell over. My wife screamed. She told me. Someone gave me uh, CPR. Then they gave me electroshock. And I was unconscious for seven days in the hospital. I woke up and had a big calendar on the wall. And I said, I can't believe what, what happened. Like seven, it's seven days later and I have tubes in my arm. And the doctor came over to me and he said, I was talking to your wife and she said, you used to be over 300 pounds. I said, yes, I was. But I've kept my weight on for a long time. He said, it's a good thing you did because if you were still over 300 pounds, you wouldn't be here. That's a miracle. So what am I supposed to do? Thank the doctor? I said, thank you, God. It's the only one I could thank. And I said, will it happen again? He said, probably not. Because we're going to protect you. But as far as your heart stopping, it'll happen one more time. <laughs> I did not appreciate his humor at that point, going on my back. But it was good to know that I was protected with whatever he was giving me. So these are miracles in my life. I have a wonderful relationship with my two children, who are adults, and have their own children. I, I have five grandchildren. I love each of them, and I can express that love. I had trouble expressing love when I was 300 pounds, because who would want to hear it from me? And today, I look forward to them. They get a smile. They get a hug. And I always tell them I love them. And I miss them. And that's not who I used to be. So, these are the changes that have occurred in my life. One last miracle. I moved to Phoenix in 1982. I, I was getting into uh, my old business. I used to be a disc jockey. So uh, I was offered work at a station there, and I went there. My wife is here. We put the house up for sale, and the house sells. And I'm there a few months. The house is in escrow, and the man I'm working for has a heart attack and dies. We all came to work the next day. The lawyers walked in and said, uh, this is two days after he's gone. The lawyers come in and say the station is being sold. It's becoming a Hispanic religious station, which tells every one of us we're gone. So I'm thinking to myself, my house sold. It's an escrow. I've got a son in college, a daughter in high school, and I don't have any work. And I'm 500 miles away from home. What do I do? So I called my wife and told her I'm coming home. I told her what happened. And I went to a meeting that night, a meeting I never went to all the way on the west side. I was going to east side meetings because that's where I was living. And I sat through the meeting and listened. I got back into my car and I drove home. And I did not obsess with food. I did not obsess with people. I did not hurt myself. That's a miracle. Once I got home, I had to start looking for work. I went to six meetings a day, a week. Six a week. I took one day off just to be with my family full time. But every night I went to a meeting. When I lived in Phoenix, I went seven. 
actually nine, one afternoon on Saturday and Sunday and the night, because it saved my life. In many ways, it saved my life. The doctors couldn't do it. The therapists couldn't do it. My own parents couldn't do it. My grandparents couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. I couldn't do it. And I come here, and my weight is 170 to 176. That's a miracle. I don't know how that happens. I can explain what's been going on, but I don't know why, in working steps and in doing what I'm told to do, the weight went away. That's a miracle. So, this is who I am today. I like to get to meetings to hear other people pitch because when you pitch, or people at another meeting pitch, they are taking part in their own recovery. And when I don't see hands going up, I always suggest, you know what, try it. Pitch once. If it doesn't work, you don't have to do it again. But motivate yourself to say something because then we're part of. And we have to be part of. Because when I'm alone, I'm in trouble. And I'm not alone. So, I will leave you with uh, some words that I collect. I collect words, adages from people who probably knew nothing about uh, AA or OA, but they said things that have a meaning in these rooms. And this one was said by George Santayana. He lived in the middle of the last century. He's a philosopher. And he said, There is no cure for birth or death except to enjoy the interval. Thank you very much for being here. How my higher power has changed during my abstinence. In the beginning, I looked at it as a wizard. I didn't know what it was or where it was. But something was there. Because I did come to believe that there was something working that wasn't working before. And I have a connection to my higher power. And my daily connection now is a very simple word. Prayer. We pray. Children, little children know how to pray. They ask for things. When they ask for something, they're praying they're getting it. So I ask for things. I ask for a peaceful day. I ask for another good day with my wife and kids. I ask for different things. And I listen to the result and go out and do the day and my connection with my higher power is at the end of the day, I could say thank you. Because my days are pretty good. So my connection is from it being a magical wizard type of power to one that just exists if I reach out to it. But to draw a picture of it, I don't know how. But it is there, and that's enough for me. I was wondering, what do you say to yourself before you get on the scale and then after... I have a standard line. I used it yesterday when I got on the scale. And uh, I said, God help me. Because the scale I find frightening. It's going to put a mood on me. It's going to tell me, feel lousy the rest of the day. Or don't feel good enough. Even though you did well, you didn't do good enough. I can't let that scale rule my mind. So I said, God help me. I step on, I look down, I see the number, I step off. I'm done for the month. And there are people I sponsor that had to get into that routine. And I said, look, if you want to get on the course of a month, I can't stop you, but I don't want to know what it is. 
And sometimes they'll say to me, I, I did get on, and it's really good news. Would you like to hear it? No, I don't want to know it. It's a number. The numbers have to do with our body weight, and my recovery has to do with what I'm doing with my head. But I still ask for God's help when I get on a scale. How do I deal with resentments when they occur in the program today? Well, uh, my tongue is very well scarred. I bite it a lot. <laughs> Instead of letting something come out that I have to pay for later. I have to realize other people cannot control what they're doing and I cannot control other people. So they're going to get in my face. And sometimes I just have to say, look, I can't get into it. You know, I either change the subject or walk away. I cannot look at somebody and listen to what they're saying and buy it. Because if I buy it, I want revenge. And if I ask for if I try to get revenge, I'm getting myself in trouble. I only want to save myself. I can't save the other person. And when they get into some sort of an argument, someone recently said, Ken, I don't think you know what you're talking about. This had nothing to do with program. I don't think you know what you're talking about. And they gave me their side of something. And I said, you know what? This is not an answer I would have given before. I said, you may be right. I just don't agree with you. That's not me talking. But I have to avoid confrontations at any cost because I will pay the price, not them. And that's what I do. I try to avoid confrontations. But the feeling does arise. Nothing wrong with the feeling of resentment as long as I don't act it out. Like anger. Justifiable anger. Nothing wrong with it as long as I don't act it out. Did you go in and out of program, or did you just go cold turkey with your alcohol? I went in and out from uh, May of 78 to November. I either went to one or two or three meetings a week, or I skipped the whole week because I screwed up. I uh, had to keep coming back and saying I'm going to try to start again. I was in and out, in and out, because this was still talking to me, and I was still listening. Once I reached a bottom, I didn't want to reach again, which was Thanksgiving of 78. And there's one way to get out of a hole, by the way. If you reach bottom and you want to know it's bottom, stop digging. I turned around and started a daily commitment. And that's how I live my life. I don't have any future. I have today. And it's a very important day to me because, you know what, we're not getting it back. So if I want to screw up today, that's my business. I don't want to screw it up because, again, I'm not getting it back. So I have a program that was, uh, I lived through yesterday, I'm living today, and with God's help, I'll have tomorrow. And I do it a day at a time.